Okay, so we all found John 18, all right? Okay. Well, let's stand and read the beginning of verse 1 of John chapter 18. And we're actually going to read a large portion of Scripture today. And uh, we're going to read to 27. When Jesus had spoke these words, he went forth with the disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the, the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again said, he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way, to fulfill the word which he had spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? So the Roman cohort and the, commanding, the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas is one who had advised the Jews that if it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people... Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I have spoke to them, and, and they know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one who here Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Lord, we have uh, read these passages before. Um, as Christians, we, as we approach Easter, for example, these, these verses are often read as we think about the crucifixion. We are not at Easter time right now. We're actually closer to your birth. And um, so we're kind of a little bit out of sync in terms of the seasons. But nonetheless, Lord, this is important to us, and we need to understand what, what's really going on here. And I pray that something new be brought to light that may have not been seen before in the story. Something that we can take away that we, we understand Peter better, we understand Jesus better, or we just understand uh, what it is to be a Christian in a different light. Uh, I just um, i am looking forward to our time together, and that you'd, be guide, you'd guide me through your spirit to, 
reveal only what truth is. And we look forward to our time in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today's message is going to be a bit different in that in order to make sense of it, we're going to have to look at two different stories that run parallel to one another. On one side, John records all the events concerning Jesus leading up to the crucifixion. But on the other hand, John records everything from the perspective of Peter. So he kind of juxtaposes two stories over one another, what's going on with Peter and what's going on with Jesus. So as we spend our time together, I'm going to be jumping back and forth between the two stories, but we have to do that in order to follow the chronological order in which John wrote it, because he wrote it going back and forth between the two. So I say this kind of to apologize in advance, because if at times it seems a little bit choppy and the delivery is not as smooth, it, you'll know why, because we have to transition from one story to another. But let's uh, jump in nonetheless. Uh, you, may be you may remember that verses 1 to 11 are already familiar to us. And the reason is, is we already looked at these verses a few weeks ago as a means of properly interpreting the, interpreting the prophecy concerning Judas and the disciples in chapter 17, verse 12. Remember in 17, 12, this was written, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And we discussed what kind of, what's going on there, what scripture is being fulfilled, what, what does this guarding mean, is it spiritual, is it physical? And we use verses 8 and 9 in chapter 18 to understand this is a physical protection. This had nothing to do with a spiritual protection. Now if this is all a bit fuzzy to you, I'm happy to revisit this in the dialogue, but now is not the time. But because we've already covered these verses, then I'm, I'm just going to move on. But I do want to say a couple things uh, before we leave verses 1 to 11, because they're going to help us in understanding the remainder of this passage. And they're going to uh, illuminate us to some important truths to understand the remaining verses. So let, me, let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you to paint a picture of what it was like that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was arrested, what do you think the scene was like from the perspective of Christ and Peter and the rest of the disciples? I mean, it talks about the Romans coming, the Pharisees coming, and all this. Like, you know, imagine like the, 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 the numbers and what it would have looked like in terms of an intimidating kind of fearful situation. I think often we approach this from a sort of a children's way of looking at it, like almost like a Bible story you read in a children's book. You know, like you have this picture with... Um, nighttime, Jesus in the garden alone with 11 disciples. He's praying, they're sleeping. But then when all of a sudden Judas shows up with a, with a few Pharisees and a handful of soldiers, the disciples awaken and they say Jesus being betrayed by Judas and getting kissed by him and then he gets arrested and then he's drawn off, right? That's the kind of scene that we often get. And you might think, well, there might have been the 12 disciples or 11, with, or 11 disciples and Jesus and just a few smattering of religious leaders and Roman soldiers. If that's what's in your head, get that out of your head. That's, that is completely opposite to what it would have looked like in terms of numbers and, in, and intimidation. The chronology, the chronology of events is accurate, but it's a failure to grasp the intensity of what it would have been like that night if you were in the garden. See, Judas didn't show up with a few frail old Pharisees and a handful of Roman soldiers. He came with some major key players. Look at verse 3. Notice it says that he came with a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort. 
a Roman cohort at full strength numbered between 600 and 1,000 men. Now, it's unlikely that the full cohort, full cohort showed up that night. It's probably just a figure of speech that John used as a way of describing who was involved in the arrest of Jesus. I'll give an example. Um, you know, you might say, oh man, there was a fire in Cimarron and the whole Okotoks, the Okotoks Fire Department showed up to put out a fire. Well, you don't mean every single member on the department. You're just, you're just describing who showed up to the scene. All right? However, in the commentaries I read, in the sources I looked up, a Roman cohort was consistently about 120 men. Sorry, sorry, let me rephrase that. Within a cohort was something called a maniple. And a maniple frequently had 120 men. And some say 200 men. Okay? So, cohort 600 to 1,000 men within a cohort is a maniple, which is 120 to 200 men. So, there's very possible that's how many Romans alone showed up in the, in the, in the garden that night. Now, I even think it could have been more. And I'll give you a substantiation from the text. See, Jesus was, like Paul, Paul when he was arrested in, in Acts 23, 23, had 470 soldiers show up to transport him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. You can look it up yourself, Acts 23, 23, there were 470 people sent to transport him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. That's how important Paul was as a man. Jesus in this time is extremely important because of the potential unrest that could occur in Jerusalem. Remember, it's Passover. The population is tripled or quadrupled in size. There's just hundreds and hundreds of thousands there. He's already gained popularity. People have already laid branches on the road saying, Hosanna, King in the, right? he, they're already accepting him as the Messiah. And all these things going on. And, and the, the Jews are terrified of a revolt. And the last thing that the Romans want is a revolt. Because if you're Pontius Pilate and you find out there's an unrest in Jerusalem and, and you, Caesar finds out about that, you could lose your head. Right? So the Romans don't want a riot, and the Jews don't want a riot, and so they send 200 minutes, well, probably 120 to 600, who knows, soldiers to the garden to get Jesus Christ. I mean, just think of that in, in your head. But it's not only the Roman cohort that showed up, there's another group called the officers of the chief priests and Pharisees in verse 3. Now, we're not told who the officers were here, but we know from the rest of the scripture, this was the temple guard, the temple guard, and their function was to maintain order within the temple environment. And they could also be used by the Sanhedrin outside of the temple to settle religious disputes that broke out amongst the people. So basically, the, the officers, the temple guard, were the Jewish police, the Jewish police. So here, here again, they're not sending the, the shepherds or like farmers into the garden to get Jesus. They're sending in their highest level of Jewish security. And both groups don't come empty-handed. We also are told by John they came with torches and lanterns because it was nighttime and weapons. Now it's good for us to gain clarity of what this looked like because we see the magnitude of the seriousness of the events and the fear and intimidation that must have been like in the garden for the disciples. You see, both the Romans and Jews then sent their finest forces to take Jesus into custody. And these were hundreds of armed, trained, fighting men in the garden that night against fishermen and tax collectors. Pretty unfair uh, battleground. Now, why would this matter so much? Why spend so much time like, getting, putting this out there? Well, for me, it helped me realize for the first time in my entire Christian life, <laughs> for how short that's been, how significant Peter's response has now become. 
What does Peter do? Look at verse 10. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. You see, Peter is always portrayed in what way to you? Coward, loser, fragile faith, don't be like him, right? Here's a man who is supposedly this giant coward, and we're going to deal with his denials soon enough. Is he's always portrayed this way. Here's a guy who's so he's courageous. This is an act of bravery. If you have hundreds of soldiers in your presence, and, and, and who knows how many Jewish uh, temple police, you know it's a losing battle. So for you to go to war in, a, in an effort to fight in this way shows his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. This guy is not as much of a coward as you think he is, even though, again, he denied Jesus three times. But again, proof that he was a fisherman and not a soldier was evident by the fact that he only cut off Malchus's ear. Don't think that he was like some wizard with a sword, that he was intentionally doing that. He would have been going for his head and just missed severely, right? He's a fisherman, remember, not a soldier. So he cuts off his ear, and that's as far as he gets. So even though Peter's brave here, he's still misguided. He's still misguided. And Jesus tells him this in verse 11. He says to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? You see, Peter failed to understand how the present events of Jesus' arrest were actually within God's divine plan. Jesus being arrested was actually fully in God's plan. He wasn't outside God's will. He was right within God's will. And Peter didn't know this at the time. So with Jesus now arrested... Uh, John tells us that Jesus was immediately taken to the leading Jewish authority in Israel, which was the high priest. And we pick this up in verse 12 and 13. It says, So the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, it's interesting that Caiaphas is listed as the high priest, and yet Jesus is not first taken to the high priest, Caiaphas. He's actually taken to his father-in-law named Annas. Now, what's the reason for this? Why, why bypass Caiaphas, who he's the high governing authority in Israel at the time? Well, according to the commentaries I read, um, I would suggest, they suggested that the Jews still regarded Annas as being the true high priest in Israel in the time, and that he was the most powerful man in Israel from their perspective. Now, what's interesting is verse 19 actually supports this. Because look at John, how John records the definition of Annas. He says, The high priest then questioned Jesus and his disciples about his teaching. Who's the high priest? John's saying the high priest is Annas in verse 19. This is not Caiaphas. <laughs> All right? So John gives Annas the title high priest in verse 19, which would then show how the Jewish people saw him in those days. And I want to read you from this commentary, in John MacArthur's commentary, it's very good, um, why uh, Annas was Jesus was taken to Annas and not to Caiaphas. Okay? This is very good. He says, Although he no longer held office at the time, Annas was the most powerful figure in the Jewish hierarchy. He had been the high priest from AD 6 to AD 15 when he was removed from office by Valerius Gratus, Pilate's predecessor as a governor. He could still properly carry the title of high priest in much the same way that the formal presidents of the United States are still referred to as the president after they leave office. Annas' title, however, was more than a mere courtesy. Many Jews resentful to, of the Romans meddling in their religious affairs still considered Annas to be the true power. 
especially since according to the Mosaic Law, high priests served for life. Leon Morris uh, confirms this in a different way. Leon Morris says this, there is little doubt but that the astute old man at the head of the family exercised a good deal of authority. He was in all probability the real power in the land, whatever the legal technicalities. Okay, so Annas was removed by the Romans prior to Pilate showing up. And so the Jews still regard him as high priest. So what's this all going on then with Jesus as he's being interrogated? Peter is up to something in the background. And we pick this up in verse 15 and 16. Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. The fact that John records that Peter had been following Jesus and managed to even get into the, high, into the courtyard where the high priest was, where Jesus was being interrogated, is significant to me again, based on the comments you made earlier about him often being portrayed as a coward. You see, in Matthew 26, 56, there's a record there that when, all the, when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples fled. He gets arrested and they all take off like scared. Now, Peter is clearly following Jesus here. So whether he never uh, was not part of the 11 that fled and he initially followed him right away or whether he fled initially and then changed his mind maybe minutes later that he should follow Jesus, we don't know. But regardless of what the situation, when, when Matthew records the disciples fleeing and we have Jesus being followed by Peter, we see again, not a coward, but someone who's brave. Someone that's committed to Christ, has a genuine concern and love for him. Because not only has he now yielded a sword on behalf of Jesus Christ, he's followed him into hostile territory. He's followed him into hostile territory, and we, he, we know it. He's right around, verse 18 is going to record, he's around a charcoal fire, and he's gathering around with, behind enemy lines. But even though Peter has showed signs of bravery, his fears of the situation still got the best of him. And we pick this up in verse 17. It says, Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. At the same time that Peter is denying Christ for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus is now facing them head on. He, he says this in verse 19 and 21. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And then Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When you look at this trial going on here, you don't see it at first because John's not sort of making this his highlight, but this trial that Jesus was undergoing was unfair. It was unfair, and it was actually illegal according to their own Jewish law. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it says this, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If you're a Jew and you want to take someone to court, even if it's a sin issue, you need more than one witness. You need at least two or three witnesses to take that to, 
to have a fair trial. Jesus is arrested in the middle of the night. They did it at nighttime intentionally, right? So that the crowds wouldn't see to create an unrest. But they're bringing him in at night and um, there's no witnesses. There's no witnesses. They're not called, they're, they're, the high priest is standing with Jesus one-on-one -on -one, and there's nobody else there on behalf of Jesus. This is an illegal trial according to their law. With this in mind now, we can see how Jesus' response in verse 20 and 21 is so clever. Because he says to them, I've always spoken openly to the world. I've taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. So what is he saying? He's saying to them, uh, in essence, bring out the witnesses. Bring out the witnesses, guys. You think uh, you want to have a fair trial? Bring them out. Ask anybody. Bring them all here. They'll all tell you the exact same thing. What They've heard me all speak consistently the same messages throughout these three-year ministry. What he did was he unmasked Annas' uh, hypocrisy because Jesus was accused of breaking the law. He was a blasphemer, right? That's why he was there. He'd previously been accused of breaking Sabbaths and all sorts of things. So Jesus is on trial for being a lawbreaker, and here they are doing the exact same thing themselves. <laughs> that's, the, that's, what relig that's what the beauty of religion, isn't it? Religion is always, is always filled with hypocrisy. There's an important observation that we don't want to miss that applies to our lives here. You see, notice what Jesus is primarily known for amongst the people in Israel. He's not primarily known for his compassion ministries, feeding of the poor, helping the widow, the miracles he did. That's not what he's known for. It, he says, he, Jesus himself said, I've spoken openly to the world. I've taught in the synagogues and in the temple where everyone comes together. Nothing's in secret. Jesus says, I am known. Everything I have to offer, everything I'm known for is what I teach. What I teach. See, Jesus came to take care of people's spiritual needs primarily, not their physical needs. Whether he was inside the temple or outside the temple, outside the synagogue or inside the synagogue, uh, in the world, he was known as someone who spoke truth of the gospel and the Christian way of life. You know, I just came back from Scotland, as many as you know, and um, the day before I left, <clears throat> God gave me a tremendous... Uh, uh, experience in a, in a grocery store in terms of timing for my sermon. Um, I was standing in line and my auntie Linda was uh, talking to a woman and asking how her son was doing and she said, oh my son's now uh, working for Mes McConnell, this pastor out of Edinburgh. And my, Lin my auntie Linda was going on about this and I asked, who's this Mes McConnell guy? And she said, oh he's a church planter in Edinburgh, Scotland. And his goal is to plant 20 churches in Scotland. That's his goal. So I went on his website and I looked him up and he was, seems like an awesome, incredible guy. Um, I'm hoping to make contact with him in the future to ask him how he's doing it. But what's interesting about Mez is that my Linda told me his story. My Auntie Linda, she said, he came from a broken family. He was on drugs. Uh, he was, on the, he was uh, into crime. He'd actually stabbed someone in the chest and was in jail. Uh, you know, and everything, and he's, he lived on the streets, and he was in his like, late teens when this was all occurring. Tell, he's got a testimony on YouTube, he's got a really bad broken life. And uh, he became a Christian later in life, but he was asked to speak at a conference to pastors only, talking about his vision for church plants and what was nece necess the necessities for church plants in terms of their, their vision. And uh, 
Linda's pastor said, I was hit right between the eyes by one thing he said. Now, this is Mez McConnell's words, okay? He said this, I knew when I was homeless and on drugs and all whacked out, I could go into any city in the UK, any city in the UK within two days be fully taken care of with food, clothing, and shelter. He said, I could, I'd go, what I'd do is I'd go to the churches, I'd go to the churches in every single city, and they'd always provide me with food, clothing, and shelter. I'd always be taken care of within two days of entering a city. And he said, you know what? They were totally gullible. They were totally gullible. He says, because I was using them. I was using them, and I knew that they would fall for it, and they would basically try to take care of all my needs. I didn't want to hear the, I didn't want to hear anything they had to say. I didn't care about God. I just knew that I could use them and abuse them. And once I was taken care of, I'd go back out into another city. And he says, you know what the indictment was? He says, all of the churches, all they cared about is whether I had food, clothing, and shelter, but no one gave me any gospel message and spoke any spiritual truth into my life. Right? Now, how many churches do you know in North America that make it their mandate and think it would be an awesome thing if they took care of everyone's physical needs in terms of shelter and food and clothing? See, I'm not saying you don't do that. I'm saying that's for most churches, that's the means to the end. Mez McConnell says, I was using them, abusing them. I knew they were a bunch of suckers and I was doing it because uh, I knew they would fall for it every single time and I had no care in what they had to say. But here's the thing, Mez McConnell at some point became a Christian because somebody gave him the gospel truth and didn't take care of his physical needs, <laughs> right? And so he was just saying to these pastors in this conference, listen guys, like I don't care, what, whatever your vision is, whatever your vision is in terms of these 20, if you wanna partner with us in these 30, 20 church plans, the gospel truth, the spiritual truth have to be the focus of your church. You have to speak truth. That's gotta be your focus. The other compassion ministries can come second, but never enter into compassion ministry and make that a means to an end. I mean, when I heard that, I was like, I was like, I got home from the grocery store and started looking at this phone number because this is a guy that I need to talk to. This is a guy that gets it. He understands it. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. You can ask anybody what my message is and they'll tell you how to, how, what I, they'll be clear on what it is to be saved, how it is to be saved and how to live the Christian life. That's what I'm known for. The question is then for us, church, is what are you and I known for? What are you and I known for amongst our friends? What about outside of our friends? What are you and I known for in terms of our speech, in terms of our family, in our work, in the church community? Are we simply known for being nice people, but then we're good at sharing our stuff? Or are we known for people that speak the truth of the gospel message and proclaim Christ's way of life. I mean, are we known just for, are we known that we're going to talk only about sports, weather, and music? Or do they know us as people that are going to look for open doors to preach Jesus Christ? So what was the religious response then to Jesus? Or the religious leader's response to Jesus? after he told them to call in the witnesses. We pick this up in verse 22. When he had said this, one of the officials standing by near, uh, struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you should answer the high priest? Now in the NIV, it records that he was slapped in the face. If you, turn, if you look in Mark chapter 14, it shows that he was slapped in the face here too. So again, the, John doesn't highlight the kind of 
physical abuse he received here, but it would seem from the other passages in Bible translations he was slapped in the face. But it turns out that Jesus wasn't only going to receive that slap in the face from the high priest official. There was one more he was going to receive, and that was from Peter. Let me pick this up in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warning himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. Peter denied Jesus three times within a short span. This is the same man in Mark 14.31 who said, Even if I have to die for you, Lord, I will never, ever deny you. This is a man who denied Jesus three times in one night who claimed he would never, ever deny Jesus Christ. Peter's life serves as a stark reminder for us that no matter how strong we think our faith is, we are all susceptible to faith failure. Our faith has the potential to be fragile. And the thing is, church, like we learned today that Peter's not a coward. He's not the coward you've been taught through Sunday school and through other, other like stories you've heard. Yes, he was a coward in these moments. I get it. But the guy would draw a sword for Jesus Christ. That's farther than some of us would go, maybe. He'd follow him into enemy territory. That might be, that might be farther than we'd even go. But still, under the certain trials and circumstances and fears, his faith still proved to be fragile. And see, that you and I are not beyond this point either. No matter how tight you and I think we are with God, uh, we are possibly ones that would deny Jesus pretty quickly. So I think what I want to say is really, never boast about your faith. Never boast about how strong you think your faith is. Because I don't think you and I will ever know where we stand until we're truly tested. And Galatians 6, 3 warns us about boasting about this anyway. He says this, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. <laughs> right? If you and I think we're something in faith, we're, when we're actually probably nothing, we're deceiving ourselves. You know, I don't know about you, but this is just the way I'm wired. I've been going through a mini faith crisis for the last, I'd say, six weeks or so, just wondering lately if I would ever have what it takes to stand up for Christ and, and if the world goes to hell the way it's supposed to. I was walking through the, the airport of London in Heathrow by myself, and there was a group of Muslims, uh, like, you know, uh, older gentlemen, so they're probably more like a, um, committed to the faith than, say, the younger generation. And there were six of them there, and I was thinking about I just left my family. It was sad, and I thought, let's say they, it was a different scenario. It wasn't a public airport, and they found out I was a Christian, and they, and they, they captured me. And I knew, and they said to me, deny Christ or we take you in. After I just left my family at the airport, would I actually stand up for Christ in that moment? Or would I actually say, no, I won't because I want to go back to my family? I mean, these are real things that go through my head. But these are the things I ask myself all the time because I'm wondering, do I have what it takes really when, when, when push comes to shove? So I'm going through my own faith crisis, my own Peter moments in my own head and, and wondering about how to, you know, where I really stand. 
it's no wonder when we talk about uh, praying in the name of Jesus before that we are the, to be in line with Jesus in terms of prayer is to pray for faith of ourselves and the faith of others. Right? Two categories. To pray in the name of Jesus. If you pray for the faith of others, you're in line with God's will. If you pray for faith of yourself and others, you're in line with God's will. Right? We all need, we all need to have a faith that, like Peter in Acts, <laughs> not like Peter here in the, around the fire. All right, three lessons. Lesson one. As believers, it is imperative that the focus of our ministry is the proclamation of the truth concerning the gospel. It is imperative that the focus of our ministry is the, is the proclamation of the truth concerning the gospel. You know, you might think, well, that's so obvious, Andrew. It's not obvious anymore. That's not obvious in the Christian church. If, if, if Mes McConnell has to sit in front of a group of people and say, I used the churches... I used the churches through my entire teenage years and, and, and uh, maybe early 20s, I don't know when he came to Christ, for, for a number of period of time, that means that that's not the priority of the, the church typically anymore. It might have been 50, 60 years ago, but it's not the truth. We are so wrapped up in everything else, but, but speaking of the truth of the Word of God. And I mean, the, the, the one thing that's going to change people's lives is the Word of God not how much food we put on their table. Compassion Ministries need to take a second seat to the teaching of God's Word and His ways. Therefore, if this is true, there's a second lesson then. As believers, we need to strive to be people who are known for declaring Jesus and His ways. So if our ministry focuses to be the proclamation of the truth, then we as the people of the church need to strive to be people who are known for declaring Jesus and his ways. So, you know, again, the question for you and I is this, are we the same people here on Sunday as we are in our workplaces? Are we the same people here on Sunday as we are with our family or with our friends? This is going to mean a couple of things for us. We're going to have to, therefore, learn more about them. If we're going to declare God's ways, we need to learn about who He is, which means we're going to have to spend time in the Word of God. And secondly, it's going to mean you're going to have to face your fears. You're going to have to face your fears and anything that is going to make, potentially intimidate you if you're going to strive to be people who are known for declaring His ways. And you might look at the Acts church and think, these guys are spiritual monsters. I wish it could be like the early church in Acts because they were so... They were so um, awesome and such great role models. Do you know that those people lived in tremendous fear and were scared that they wouldn't have a faith that could stand up to the tests of their time either? I want to read you something from Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Uh, the, the, the name of Jesus has, has been forbidden uh, to be spoken of in Jerusalem. And the disciples have already gone up against the religious leadership. And uh, they've been they've been they've been taken into uh, um, taken into custody, and they've been released. And then they go back to their 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 Christian church and declare what happened to them. And then they, they prophesy about some the, about how the Gentiles were raging against the people of God, and so on and so forth. And then listen to this in verse twenty nine. This is this is the early church people in that congregation. This is their prayer. And now, Lord, take note of their threats 
and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of Jesus. And when they had prayed this, the place where they had been gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, this church was fearful of the threats going on and knew in their own strength they did not have the courage to face what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And they corporately get together in prayer and they pray for boldness and the filling of the Spirit occurs in that moment. They're, not, they're already Christians. They have the Spirit of God. But they're filled with the Holy Spirit and, and they're given the courage and the boldness to stand up to the culture that they face. So what's it going to mean for us to be distracted to people who are going to declare Christ's ways? You're going to have to learn about him. You're going to have to know him to declare him. You're going to have to face your fears. And I suggest that you start praying for boldness in this culture. <laughs> start praying for boldness in your own life and for the boldness in this church that we're going to be able to face the threats in our culture. And finally, as believers, we need to recognize that we are all susceptible to denying Christ regardless of the maturity of our faith. We need to recognize we're all susceptible to denying, denying Christ, regardless of the maturity of our faith. It doesn't matter with your, if you're a Christian for six months, or you've walked with Jesus for decades. Well, there's a lesson we can learn from Peter, right? Even the closest followers of Jesus are not immune uh, to denial. I'll end with a story. Uh, This is just like God to do this to me. I remember when I was teaching on patience and God had Janice and I in a car together <laughs> on the highway and she uh, was scaring me a couple of times with some yellow and green and red lights. <laughs> I told that story in church already. So. so here's me preparing for this sermon and I, had, I got all three lessons put to the test in, one, in, one, in about a six hour time span. So just between you and I, my biggest fear, one of my biggest fears in my own life is how to relate to Muslim people. When I look at them, they, I don't understand them. When I, when I see their culture, hear about what they do, I don't understand them. And sometimes, sometimes what you don't know is what you fear. This lack of knowledge is what you fear. Okay? I've been learning things, I've been reading books, I've been listening to YouTube videos from people who have come to Christ with Muslims. But, you know, a little bit of knowledge just only makes you dangerous. So, uh, so they, they, make me, they make me feel awkward when I'm around them. I don't know how to relate to them. I know their image, you know, created the image of God. I know that uh, God loves them, the cross is for them, but it doesn't still change my, uh, my, my human flesh and my, the way I perceive them. So I'm standing in line at the airport, ready to embark to, to Canada. Um, and uh, I wait till the, everyone gets called and I wait to the very end. So that I could figure we're all going on the same plane anyway. Why go on first? I'm going to have to sit for an extra 20 minutes. And I'm second last from the end, basically. And uh, a Muslim couple say, please, join us. And I said, oh, no, no, it's okay. We're all going to the same place. He's like, no, please, my friend, join us. So I thought, okay. So I went up and they let me go ahead of them. So I thought, well, I might as well talk to them since they were so courteous. So I asked them who they were and we started talking and we had a conversation, like minimal conversation as we're getting on the plane. And something in my head said, maybe it was the, probably the prompting of the Spirit, said, this is not the last you're going to talk to this guy on this trip. I'm like, okay. We get on the plane. I'm sit, I sit for four to five hours in a row. And uh, I get up to go to the bathroom, stretch in the back. 
As I'm standing in the back, lo and behold, this Muslim guy gets up and joins me in the back. <laughs> so there's two of us standing there in the back, and I thought, okay, Lord, this is exactly what I was expecting. Now, here's the thing. I was just finished my sermon, right? All the observations about being one who would be known for standing up for, for Christ, being proclaiming both inside and outside the family, inside and outside the church, the truth of the gospel message. His primary concern is the speaking of the truth, and that all of us are susceptible to denying Christ, but you have to face your fears and fears and fail, failures and fears. <laughs> so I thought, oh man, so here we go. Like I can't, what a hypocrite if I just walk back to my seat. So here I go. I walk up to him and I thought, the easiest way into a person's life with men is always talk about work. You said, I mean, you, men are notorious for that. How's it going? Oh man, I'm busy at work. You talk about work. So I thought, he's going to talk to me about asking what I do. So I go up to him and I say, hey, what do you do for a living? Right, knowing he'd asked me. He tells me he's an engineer, mechanical engineer. He was working in Dubai. He was there for two years. And then he was going back to Calgary to be home after his contract's up. He asked me what I do. And I said, I'm a pastor of a Christian church. And then he smiles and, and then sort of nods. And then he opens up the spiritual conversation and starts going down the path about inclusivity of all religions, and it's important that we just want learn to accept one another, right? And that's so easy to just look, nod, and go like this, and so I, I start opening up the door. And I've told you this before too, church, so I practice what I preach. I don't get into the any other, it, I'll always stick to the identity of the nature of Jesus Christ, who he is. Because all religions have so many categories of life you can get into, I just stick to who Jesus is. So he gives me this, this thing about there's only two kinds of people in the world, good and bad. So he says that to me, and then I, and he goes on about how Muslims are actually peaceful, loving people. So I said to him, if this is true, I said, why in the Quran are there specific verses that speak about holy war and the killing of infidels, including Christians and Jews? And he says to me, well, that's, that's, and he says, you don't understand the context of those verses. And then he started to proceed to give me the context of those verses. He went on for 20 minutes, and I didn't, I don't think I said a word. Now, the old me would have tried to fight his old comments. I thought, I'll ignore everything he just said, and I'll go, go back to the good and bad. So he gives me his whole history of Islam, and I said to him, you know, um, I said, you mentioned something earlier about being good and bad and with two kinds of people. I said, you know what makes Jesus unique? And he's like, no. I said, you know, Jesus is the only one who exclusively taught that all of us are not good people. I said, he's the only religious teacher in the world who's ever taught that actually the heart of man is wicked and we all need a savior. And then I talk about the need for Jesus to come down to the cross, die for sins, and so on. He listens to me. And then he, he goes on about something else. And then I said, he said to me, I said, I realize as a Muslim, your issue, though, is the greatness of God's at stake. And he said, yeah, that's my, like, that's my issue. I said, you probably wonder how, how, like, how God can still be great, if, especially when we, when we teach in this triune nature of God, that Jesus is God and so on and so forth. And he said, yeah, that's a problem. And I started explaining the Trinity to him and how the Trinity is necessary for God to be great. We were in that back for about 45 minutes to an hour. When I got to the exclusivity of Jesus and the Trinity, he ended the conversation and went back to his seat. That was very fascinating to me. He was all in, all in, all in. As soon as I spoke the truth of the Trinity, but here's what he said to me. He said, I've never heard anybody in Christianity explain God that way to me before. 
And I said, he goes, why don't they? And I said, I said, I said, I said, his name was um, Muhammad, go figure. I said, Muhammad, the reason, Muhammad Ishmael, which is, I mean, it's just, just, it was awesome. I said, Muhammad, I said, that, I said, that's a great point. I said, your point is well taken. That's exactly why I have a job. My job is to educate Christians on how to defend the truth of the gospel message. I said, that's what I get paid for. I said, you're right. All Christians should know how to defend the, the nature of God and who he is and why he had to come in the form of a tri triune God. You know, and at the end of the thing, he actually said to me, uh, he'd like to keep in contact. I know that, that unfortunately that when we got on the plane, I couldn't locate him in the thing. So that, that ended. So likely the contact is over. But here's the thing. At the end of the conversation, he didn't say, I hate you. I don't want to talk to you anymore. He's like, that was an enlightening conversation. And I want you to, I, would, I wouldn't mind if we stayed in contact. But again, like, I'm, just, I'm just sharing all these things with you. As everything in my flesh was saying, go back to your seat. Don't say a word. You, but, you know, I, I had to, I'm afraid of Muslim people. But I had to enter into the conversation to know where I stood. Because without speaking to them, you never know what you don't know until you enter into the conversation. But now when I go back to another Muslim and have another conversation, it'll be a lot easier. A lot easier, because all I have to do now, and what you would have to do, is just um, look for the commonalities in the, in the things that they say and deal with those issues. So, you know, I, I, God might bring fruit out of this. Maybe I'm one of six people. Maybe now he'll meet five other Christians who will declare the same truth and he'll become a Christian. We'll, stand, we'll see him in heaven one day. And God will say, see, that's why you had to be faithful on that plane, because you're one of six people that brought him the faith. Or, God, which he always does, he's, off, he's peering to people, in, Muslim people are getting peered to in visions and dreams all the time. Maybe he comes to them in a dream and says, that guy on the plane was telling you the absolute truth. Right? So, anyway, just to share with you that I stand up here like I'm all put together, but I have the exact same problems and same fears as you do, and I have the same realities to face in my own life. So the question is, what are we going to do in the midst of those fears and insecurities? My heart pumps and thumps the same way yours does.